This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 7th and 8th of June 2016, King and Wood Mallisons and the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW co-hosted panel discussions in both Sydney and Melbourne titled The Displacement Project, Perspectives on Climate Change and Displacement. Both events brought together a multidisciplinary panel of speakers who each offered a unique insight into the human impacts of climate change. This podcast was recorded at the Sydney event. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Liam Burgess. I'm a senior associate here at King and Wood Mallisons, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to the panel discussion this evening. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the owners and custodians of the land on which we meet today, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Um, King of Mallisons, we're very pleased to host this event this evening and glad that you're all able to join us. Millions of people around the world are displaced each year uh, as a result of environmental disasters. And climate change is predicted to increase the frequency and magnitude of these extreme weather events and to contribute to ever greater levels of human displacement over coming decades. At King of Wood Mallisons, we consider sustainability to be relevant and important to our people, and we're very excited to co-host this event this evening with the Andrew and Renato Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. The UNSW Caldor Centre is the world's first research centre dedicated to the study of international refugee law. Uh, the centre is known for its thought leadership in refugee law and forced migration, and we're thrilled to partner with them on this project to contribute to public discussion in the area. Our three distinguished speakers this evening are Dr. Marianne Luffrey, a psychologist associated with the Jesuit Refugee Service, Professor David Sanderson from the University of New South Wales, and Professor Jane McAdam from the University of New South Wales Cowdoff Centre. Our speakers will offer a range of perspectives um, on the issue this evening. Dr. Lowry Fluffery will begin by considering the psychosocial and human effects of climate-induced displacement. Professor Sanderson will be providing some on-the-ground observations um, based on his architectural experience and background. And finally, Professor McAdam will give us an overview of the international legal framework and an update on global processes before we open the forum um, to questions from you, the audience. Uh, our first speaker this evening is Dr. Marianne Luffery. Dr. Luffery is a Sister of Mercy and has worked with, Jesuit refugee, with the Jesuit Refugee Service since 1986 um, as a psychologist, first in Indo-Chinese refugee camps um, in the Philippines, then in, Vietnam, in Vietnamese detention centres in Hong Kong, and subsequently also in Vietnam with former unaccompanied minors who were returned to their families after having their claims for refugee status rejected by neighbouring countries. She's conducted research, program evaluations and humanitarian training in the Middle East, the Balkans, Southeast Asia and the UK. Dr Luffery is a visiting research scholar at the Centre for Human Rights and International Justice, Boston College, a research associate at the Refugee Studies Centre, University of Oxford, and prior to that, she was a tutor at the University of Oxford Refugee Studies Centre for seven years. Presently, Dr. Luffery is a member of the Australian Government's Minister for Immigration Advisory Council on Asylum Seeker and Detention Issues. And she also serves on the Governing Committee of the International Catholic Migration Committee. 
She's currently researching the psychosocial effects of climate-induced displacement in the Pacific and was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2010 for her services to refugees. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Lott. Thank you very much. It's clear I've lived a long life. Um, good evening. I think it's, a, um, it's very timely, having just witnessed enormous storms in New South Wales, that we're addressing this issue. New South Wales, Brisbane, Tasmania, Paris, Germany. I'm not here to talk about um, the science, whether that's a re result of climate change or not. I don't know enough about the science. But I do know, as Liam's indicated, that in 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so this is the supreme body, if I can say that, of scientists across our world who look at the science, indicated that changes in many extreme weather, and I'm quoting, and climate events have been observed since about 1950. Some of these changes have been linked to human influences including a decrease in um, cold temperature extremes, increase in warm temperature extremes, sea level rises, and the number of heavy precipitation events in a number of regions. Now, whether we have just seen a climate change event, I'm not sure, but this is the sort of thing that is now becoming increasingly in the US with what we saw with um, Cyclone Sandy with New Orleans, with what we've seen here, it's what's starting to have this a topic that's getting closer to home for all of us. But surprisingly for me, I actually woke up in um, March this year to Fran Kelly talking to Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, I wasn't aware um, to listening to her that she's now Bunky Moon's special advisor on climate change. And she was talking about the need for climate justice to actually be human-centred. Why was I surprised? I was surprised because, because I've always worked in the area of refugee and displacement, I've always started as human-centred. But it was interesting for me to hear her say that's where we needed to start because I guess what she was doing is juxtaposing exactly what I just started with, the science. So rather than starting with people and the effects of climate on people, we've been caught up very much in the science. In listening to Mary, I found her very um, compelling because what she said was, we really have to concentrate on what's happening to people because it's more, she was arguing, a matter of justice. And it's a matter of justice because it influences things like gender issues food security, where people can live. So she was putting a justice dimension onto the human reality, which Jane will address further, but that whole international thinking around entitlements. And some of us have been caught and experts on different components, and she was saying climate change influences all of this. She also went on to say that what it's doing is affecting the least responsible, the least responsible. And that's a little bit what I'm wanting to unpack today. She described it 
as our leading social justice issue. So this is Mary Robinson, who's worked in human rights, she's been the president of Ireland. It was almost like she was talking about a conversion. She had come around to seeing climate change as something that we really, really need to address. And as I say, it, it sort of framed for me something I'd been working on, um, had started from as a psychologist from a people focus, but she was extending my thinking about this. I actually started this, and Jane and I started thinking about this quite early. In 2007, I went to the Carteret Islands. I've got a picture of where the Carteret Islands are. I went with the UK Daily Mail. Now, you might wonder how on earth I got in a boat with the UK Daily Mail. And it was only in a matter of moments before the decision was made. But this was before there was about to be a big climate conference in Bali. And the UK were out because the media from the UK were saying, on the Carteret Islands, which is off Bougainville, which is off Papua New Guinea, we're going to produce, and again, Jane will address this, the first climate refugees. So they were there with camera to see the first climate refugees. So I was there. Um, also looking at displacement, but not necessarily intending to go to the Carteret Islands, but honestly, within hours, I was on this little banana boat with the Daily Mail and off to the Carteret Islands. Here's living proof. I'm the white one. <laughs> I looked very white on the Carteret Islands because when you get to the Carteret Islands, it's quite amazing. It's about four hours by banana boat, now, banana boat is like a tinny but with a little engine. When you get there, you think you've died and gone to heaven. It's beautiful, pristine, blue, no internet, no power, no water, no shops. After a little bit, you think maybe it's not quite heaven, but it's pretty remarkable. And it's a self-sufficient environment. But when you get there as well, and by the way, the woman I'm talking to there is one of the elders who's been to a lot of the UN climate change conferences. So they are playing a major role. But when you get there, you, are, you start to be told stories of amazing destruction in these people's lives. That was one island. And the elders remember when it was one island. Now it's two, because with erosion, allegedly with sea level rising, with inundation, with king tides. We just read about king tides today. They talk about king tides all the time. But when Jane and I went to start this, I went a little bit earlier to the Carterets, but then Jane and I went to Tuvalu, to Kiribati. We were warned, remember Jane, very quickly, be very careful about talking about this as climate-induced or a problem to do with climate, it's what atolls do. Now, over time, we've been advised to think again and that maybe climate is making a big difference here. But as, as I'm saying, when you go to these sorts of places, you do meet the least responsible. They don't have greenhouse gas emissions. They're not emitters, or if they are, it's the engine on the banana boat, it's very, very low emission. And they themselves are facing having to move. They have to move because they can no longer grow their crops. 
Why can't they grow their crops? It's because of the salt inundation. So they can show you where they used to grow crops and now they can't grow crops. It's not really sea level rising in the sense of that you can see it going up, but what you can see is it doesn't leave. It comes in on the king tides and it doesn't withdraw. The people facing this on the Carterets have been to, deemed to be the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. But that's what I want you to help me think about. Does that mean then that they're vulnerable people or they're in a vulnerable situation? And I'm going to come back to that discussion. Well, first of all, what does vulnerable look like? What does climate displacement look like? So I've talked about a little bit now about the Carteret Islands. I've also talked about the people in Collaroy. Are they climate displaced people? Well, if you're looking at definitions, there are definitions around people who are permanently displaced. So if some people move from the Carterets, probably the elders, they say, will stay. Not everybody will leave. But people are moving because of livelihood. No options. But then there's also people who move temporarily. You could say the Collaroy people are temporary affected by weather, extreme weather events. So they could fit. You know, when we try to number how many people are, we're talking about in this affected by climate change, if you count the temporary people, it's an enormous number of people. If you count the permanent, obviously it's smaller. I've also subsequently <laughs> discovered, like, along the Mekong Delta, every year people are displaced along the Mekong Delta. They'll go to Ho Chi Minh City for three months and then they'll go back when the water subsides, similarly with Bangladesh. So you can bring a t millions of people along in this definition depending on how it happens. Some are locally displaced, some are displaced internationally. The Carteretas are interesting. They probably wouldn't meet the um, definition of refugee because... If they move to Bougainville, it's still in their own country, even though it's across seas. But if they moved to another country like Palau or New Zealand or Australia, then it starts to be another definition. But anyway, I'll leave the law to Jane. The two major responses to climate displacement are adaptation and mitigation. Adaptation, you see that when you go to a place like the Carteret Islands, where you see that they've built seawalls. But I tell you, it's a bit like Collaroy. The seawalls are nothing in the face of the winds and the, and the king tides as such. So think what we've just seen and put it on a smaller island with people with no big industrial ways of coping, and you'll see the sort of sense that adaptation is small and probably the, the need to move is going to be the predominant adaptation as such. There are other initiatives afoot um, to, for the Carteret Islanders, for example. They will, um, some, there's a church group who have actually already moved eight families. The government itself is trying to move 60 families at a time, but it's very, very slow. Now, think with me still, we're talking about people made vulnerable because of climate change. I think it's easy sometimes to focus on something like these small Pacific islands and think, well, poor people, vulnerable people, undereducated, under-resourced. But another place that I went to in, a couple of years ago was to Alaska. Now, Alaska and the Inuit people have the same 
issues, mainly around um, ice, of course, so we've got a different sort of water source, but around livelihood and around hunting patterns and around how they can actually keep themselves going. But they're also in the US. So we haven't got that area of vulnerability around what will happen to assist these people. What we've got is a people who've actually got, and I think I've identified it in one thing. In 2003, some of the Inuit people, it was recognised they had to move. So the Carterets were 2007, 2003 the Inuit because of climate change. Most of those people are still where they were when it was declared that they had to move. Why? There is no state authority who can help them to move. There is no international organisation who can help them to move. There's no funding to help people to move. And in the, in, in the instance of the um, Inuit in Alaska, there's also something like 20 statutory authorities who'd have to sign off on moving. The health people, the education people, the housing people, the infrastructure people, all the things that we, we know. So the vulnerability for people affected by climate change is a little bit the same in the Pacific Islands as it is in the US. The, the means for identifying the need to move and then moving is not in place. Again, the international organisations, the funds, the authorities, and also things that you'll come, you'd be aware of as much as I, there's no such thing as an empty island or an empty land waiting for people who've been displaced. That's also got to be acquired. So this is some of the areas that we, we need to focus on. The other bit, and I'm coming closer to my time, is the resilience. Whilst we're thinking about this 2003, 2007, the people themselves are moving. They're adapting, they're changing their livelihood, they're changing their way of hunting. And some have actually just like, for example, with the Carteret Islanders, a lot of them have already moved. They haven't got time to wait for the government to negotiate a place for them to move to or for the church to find the appropriate place that could help them. They've already done it. So they're not even in our statistics. People are sending boats with food to help them whilst all this is being discussed. So sometimes people will say canary in the mine, but it's a, the canary's been chirping for a long, long time. And even, as I say, how we define or what the needs of these people are. So I'm wanting to argue that they're a vulnerable situation, but they're actually quite a resilient people. They're finding their own solutions. And again, I could go on, but I won't. Um, I could go on with the fact that they're very key players in a lot of the UN negotiations because they're the ones who actually go and are influencing policy because of the reality that they're living. Finally, for my bit, I'm also wanting to introduce one other area. As we become mindful, as we become mindful of what we call our cosmos, there's another sort of ecosystem that's not even at the table. We've got the science and we've got people but what we haven't brought along yet is our companions, you know, our, our um, plants, our animals who are equally affected by this, um, the vulnerability of climate change. So think again our fires that we had in Victoria a few years ago and the images of um, 
animals that were destroyed or like our iconic koala who needed assistance because they were caught up in this. That's a whole other body of knowledge to bring with us our cosmos and how they're being affected by climate change. But I'll leave it at that for the rest of my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Luffrey. Our next speaker is Professor David Sanderson. Professor Sanderson has 25 years' experience working across the world in international development and emergencies. Professor Sanderson worked for eight years for the NGO Care International UK as head of policy and subsequently regional manager for Southern and West Africa. For eight years, Professor Sanderson was director of CENDEP, a centre at Oxford Brookes University focusing on development and emergencies. Between 2013 and 2014, he was a visiting professor at Harvard University and Professor Sanderson was appointed the inaugural Judith Nielsen Chair of Architecture at the University of New South Wales in 2016. He is a board member of the Norwegian Refugee Council and also this year's editor of the IFRC World Disasters Report. Please welcome Professor Sanderson. But I've never been anywhere with the Daily Mail, which is <laughs> my really sad moment, maybe one day. <laughs> well, it's a real privilege to be here, so thank you very much for the organization of this. And the fact that we get to talk about such an important subject, and we planned this and had a couple of conference calls, and I was trying to rack my brain what to talk about that would complement what Marianne said and what Jane's going to say. And I, I thought I would talk about some of the big shapes relating to Europe and some of the big things you can detect my accent is not Australian. I, I just moved here a few months ago. And, um, well, some people say that the Syrian crisis is actually linked to drought and that exacerbated the crisis actually happening. Prince Charles said that at the end of last year in readiness for COP21 in Paris. And some people afterwards have said, well, that's not actually true. So the, the evidence is a bit sort of unsure, but maybe it was a contributory factor. So that's my, that's my tenuous link to climate change over. <laughs> so I'm now going to talk about refugees here. And I, and I just put this slide up from... Um, it's from, uh, excuse me, it's from Mercy Corps, I think, uh, from actually February 2015, which was an eternity ago. And my point in putting that up was to talk about that big shape, how dramatic is that shape. And at that time, something like 3,800,000 refugees from Syria had shifted out. Of course, that means there are still over 6 million internally displaced. But that was a year ago. And since then, another million people have been displaced from Syria and are now refugees. Um, fiendishly, I can't see my slides, but happily I looked at them earlier. I won't read out the figures, uh, <laughs> which you should be very pleased about, I suppose. Um, I can't remember the figures there, but this, this was from, I think, March from UNHCR's website, which tracks every day uh, the amount of registered refugees. Now, of course, there are a lot of people who aren't registered, but you can see where a lot of refugees have gone from immediately around Syria. Now, and of course, refugees have gone all over, and I'm ashamed to say as an English person, the paltry small number our government has taken of Syrian refugees and other countries can comment for themselves, but it's been really very shameful. It seems to have been a, a thing that actually only neighboring countries have soaked up people, and you can see the numbers there. Uh, something like 2,700,000, something like that for Turkey, uh, something like a million for Lebanon, and what I want to focus on is Jordan, which is, I think that slide says, just under 640,000. I checked today and it's something like 661,000, soon 15,000 more people in the last few months. Uh, so Jordan, what I want to talk about, probably the image a lot of people have, where are they? Where do refugees go? The classical image, 
You may have that in your mind. I certainly used to go to a refugee camp organized by UNHCR or IOM or others where you have lines of tents where people stay. And that's the image that, of course, the media perpetuates. And, of course, that's true. There are people living in, in refugee camps. And this is very famous Zatari camp, which before July 2012, I think, did not exist. And now there are, well, something like now, just under 80,000 people. No one really knows. That. I know that says 85,000, but it's something like 80,000. The reality is four-fifths of people in Jordan, just taking one country, don't live in Zatari refugee camp. Four-fifths of refugees live in places such as the capital Amman in Jordan. And I suspect you would do the same. I would certainly do the same. I would want to live somewhere with my family where I'm a bit anonymized, anonymous, I should say. I can hide the wrong word, but I can be somewhere where I'm not a, a, you know, a recipient of aid. I'm not a helpless victim. Actually, I've got dignity and pride. And that word dignity is sorely underused in an awful lot of the work that a lot of us are involved in. So four-fifths of people in a city where we have an aid system which has been largely geared to, to a, a response around logistics and stuff and delivery and water and sanitation and food and counting. The reality, however, are people living in cities. Now, I'm not pretending that's new. Refugees from 1948 in Oman from Palestine are still living in the city. They're called camps, but they're actually part of the city, although you need permission to go and all those things. But the point I would like to draw out, and if we had more time, we'd talk about the urbanization around the world that's that's going on upon us, but certainly the urbanization, if you like, of refugees and the refugee crisis, because it is the biggest crisis since World War II. And of course, I'm just picking up Europe. We could mention South Sudan, Horn of Africa, Pakistan, you know, you name it, in this part of the world also. So what we're seeing, the urbanization of refugees, this is just one report. Many reports have come out. I actually can't read it, but it's talking about people isolated in cities, maybe hidden, maybe vulnerable, often not allowed to work, of course. So, of course, therefore working, but at half the rates uh, of people around. Maybe people around you are resentful because you're stealing our jobs. I mean, the, the evidence is that's not true, by the way, largely. You know, there's a, there's a contributing factor. But, of course, you know, there's something about the other. As we saw in riots in South Africa two, three years ago with Zimbabweans, the other. You know, we, we're afraid of other people from outside. So that's one of the stigmas, that, stigmas that's associated with, with our refugee situation. So I'm just picking up on, on, uh, on Jordan right now. I just want to pick up on a couple of programming things. I'm going to come on to a second one in a moment and wrap up by going macro again. But just to pick up on this one example, I, I declare an interest being engaged somewhat with the Norwegian Refugee Council. But I just want to pick up this example. This is obviously from a newspaper, the Jordan. Than times relating to a program which NRC is doing at the moment. And the idea of the program, okay, you, you're, you're faced with the idea, do you pay the rents, you're an aid agency, you've got a lot of money to help, do you pay the rents of refugees for a short time? That's an option. Okay, that's an interesting one. Do you also put up temporary uh, camps and get people to stay there in perpetuity, as it were? It can be very many years, as we all know, and I'm not going to use that 17-year statistic, because it's quite, it's quite challenged, you know, this average length of time. So beware that statistic. But, uh, so I'm not going to say that, but people can spend many years as refugees, okay? It can obviously be a lifetime, as we know. So what do you do with the money? What this agency is trying to do is actually invest, and I use that word invest. Here's the idea. You can see the headline. The idea is to benefit Jordanian hosts and also refugees. So what NRC is doing, taking aid funds from, from a number of donors, and is finding Jordanian homeowners who haven't finished building their own houses. So you see the photo there, you know, the idea of the large building site, because people are clever, people long go to build. So incentivize people to continue to build 
uh, give people money if you like front-loading one or two years worth of rent. And as a deal of upgrading your house, you rent out this property or this room or whatever it might be to refugees between one and two years. Now, I'll come to the flaws in that in a moment, but that's an interesting model, okay? So that's what's happening. And something like $10 million of money has been used so far in the last year and a half of this program, piloted in Lebanon and now used in Jordan. Something like 13,000 refugees have benefited from that, and also Jordanian hosts, because as we all know, one of the challenges are host populations and refugee populations. Now, this is the complexity of the urban world as well, can I just say. If you know a magic answer that makes it all okay, please please send an email, probably to the Daily Mail or someone else who can actually tell us what it is. Okay, but this is what it looks like. This is last October. The, uh, the man second from the left is actually the homeowner. Uh, the man to his left, as it were, third from the left, I'm making this overly complicated, is uh, the refugee from Syria. Um, I should have said, yeah, I said there's something like 660,000 refugees in Syria. There's about 1.2 million Syrians there, about half are registered as refugees, just a, just to make that point, by the way, of about 9.5 million people in, in Jordan. Okay, and then the two people either side are monitors, monitor and evaluation people from NRC. Now, this man is uh, obviously having a conversation. It's a wet, rainy day just outside Amman. Uh, this is, um, and it's, this is, mundane's not the, the real word, but it's the everyday. It's actually fix my bathroom, hire a plumber to fix the bathroom, to make the water work. This man has a wife and two young kids, small stuff like that. The cooker doesn't work. The lighting doesn't work. This is the outside of the house. I am not pretending that's nice. I don't know what you think, but it's a pretty shabby house. And back to the dignity word. Where's the dignity in this? Part of the issue is trying to upgrade existing property to use aid funds, okay? Now, I just want to make two points. Now, we could talk a year about this, right? You get how much I'm skating over the surface. The first one is about programming and uncertainty. Now, I, I just made a very short visit last October. I sat with the program manager of this project. I said, how's it going? She started crying because it's so nice, because it's so powerful. I mean, because she started crying because it's so difficult. You know why? Because they have the money. And the government said, you can't spend the money because the last thing governments want are actually for refugees to stay. Now, now, I'm not knocking the Jordanian government. They've done extraordinary things to take on so many people. And one can only admire the, the efforts of that region as someone who's English, as I said, for the reason I said. But the challenge is that, the knotty challenge, permanent impermanence. This is one program that tries to do that. Why one or two years? Because we don't know what's going to happen, because the donors won't let us plan for long term, and the government also so we're stuck in this constant problem, okay? So it's difficult. The one point I would like to draw from this and build on in the next five minutes before I stop relates to this idea of aid and investment. And I was thinking what to talk to you about. Could it be about Haiti or the Philippines or, or, or Typhoon Huayan or Cyclone Winston? We waste aid money too often. And this is something that is trying to invest. Now, I'll be the first to critique it, okay, for a, a hundred reasons. But there's a genuine effort to try and do that. Okay, let me skip over and just build on the idea of money. Okay, the idea of cash, front-loading of money. Okay, this is one of the biggest things in the aid world right now. Uh, guess what it is? It's give people money. Rather than uh, actually goods, the World Food Program, don't give people food, give people money. Because it's, it's a lot cheaper, the transaction costs are lower. People get to decide what they want to do with it. Imagine, heaven forbid, we were in a disaster. I'm the aid agency, I come and I say, you want these clothes, you want this food, you want that house. You say, no, get lost. Actually, I want to be able to choose. Okay, I'm obviously oversimplifying, but that's the broad story. The transaction costs are cheaper, though. So give people money. The tie into our refugee conversation right now, uh, always look at the evidence. This was quite a good piece of research for the 
International Rescue Committee about the Lebanese winterization program 2013-14. I won't bore you with all the stats, but basically people were given just under $600 on, on ATM cards, front-loaded, and the tracking, the evaluation found that had benefits in terms of less child labor, better school attendance, um, I forget the first one, uh, whatever it says. Yeah, no meaningful impact on prices. I just can't see it. Okay, okay you know, the, oh, give people money, it'll get wasted. No, there's corruption. Well, no worse than other sectors. And no meaningful impact on inflation. That doesn't mean there wasn't any. And also contribution to GDP. This is very powerful. So don't just take my word for it. Uh, look at the high-level panel report that came out at the end of last year relating to cash. Okay, these are some of the greatest and the good. Jan Egeland, one of the most famous humanitarians, sharing it with others. They came out by saying the number one thing is give people money. Now, this is a game changer when it comes to nat natural, naturally triggered disasters, climate change, refugee movements. This changes the game in an awful lot of ways and challenges the existing structures of the UN, of the bank, and of others, of NGOs, because this is a much better way of doing it, and the evidence is out that this is a very good thing. It is not perfect. Of course it's not. But in an urban area, it's very powerful. Now, just to end, in the last two, three minutes, um, I'm sure you were glued to your TVs and radios. Um, it was not reported at all in the Daily Mail or anywhere at all in the UK, except for in The Guardian, a couple of articles. The World Humanitarian Summit that was wrapping up this time two weeks ago in Istanbul. 8,000 people gathered after a two, three-year process of regional meetings around the world for the first time ever to say, how are we going to get better at humanitarian response to climate change, to disasters, you name it. Because the summary is, we are overwhelmed, we're not fit for purpose, we've got an old system that's largely not changed in 70 years, and actually our needs are not being met, the needs are not being met right now. We, we all know this, this is not a surprise. So how do we change what we do? Cash is one of them, okay? There are other things one can do. Um, let's hope it's not just a whimper, but it's been a bang and the start is something. Um, this is the, uh, the big commitment that came out. They clearly need a better graphics <laughs> department. Uh, that's called the grand bargain. I, I searched today, but I couldn't find a smarter one. Uh, that came out the day after. But, I'm not, I'm just, I'm, but, but it was actually a lot of people coming together and say, we'll try and do, to, to do several things. Look it up, it's 10 commitments. Um, governments don't have to sign up to it, and that's been the critique of the weakness of the whole process. That said, some serious you know, donors have got behind this, and serious people from civil society have got together to think about this, aid more transparent, aid more, trans, um, more efficient, getting more money more quickly to uh, local NGOs based, based in country. And on the cash one, because I'm just pushing this cash theme, commitment number three relates to the idea, get cash better. Now, a lot of us and others wanted it to be harder to say, do this. And so there was a bit of watering down, because you know what? Challenging the existing structures in the sector is a challenge. And I don't say that cynically. There are a lot of vested interests. Well, maybe I do, actually. But, but, you know, a lot more should be done. So I'm going to stop there and hand over to Jane. But the summary is that, you know, what well, you know, we wouldn't be in this room if you didn't know. The biggest refugee shift since World War II. We have an aid system that needs to shift. Uh, we need to talk about dignity, that climate change is upon us. But it's politics, of course, that it's all governance and it's all these other things. But there's a lot that can be done. And the world is uniting to try and make this difference. Okay, but we do need to think differently and in a more innovative way. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Sanderson. Our final speaker this evening is Professor Jane McAdam. Um, Professor McAdam is the Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. 
She is a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC, a research associate at Oxford University's Refugee Studies Center, and an associate senior fellow at the Fridtjof Nansen Institute in Norway. Professor McAdam publishes widely in international refugee law and forced migration, with a particular focus on climate change and mobility. She's the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law, the leading journal in the field. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor McAdam. Well, thank you so much, Liam, for that warm introduction. And I'd like to thank everybody at King & Wood Mallisons who's, who have made this event possible. It's a great honour for the Caldor Centre to be um, a co-host in this. And I'm thrilled that you've all come out tonight. Fortunately, we're not being battered by storms tonight. So instead of being um, uh, encountering disaster-related displacement, uh, you can hear about it uh, <laughs> instead. Just to pick up on where David left off, I think the concept of dignity is absolutely crucial to what we are trying to do when it comes to uh, addressing climate change and disaster-related movement. As Volker Turk, the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR, said at the end of last year, if there are lessons to be learned from the world's current humanitarian crises and emergencies like we're seeing in Syria, it is that states must take the forecasting seriously and they must deal with the realities of migration and displacement effectively and as a matter of urgency. Every second, one person is displaced by disaster. That means that in global terms, we're talking about 26 million people each year. And that number is additional to the 60 million people of concern to UNHCR. Most of those people will move within their own countries. And Marianne made that point before, that in the Carterets, for, for instance, people are generally moving within their own country. They're not crossing an international border. But of course, some people will be forced across international borders. And international law does not generally regard those people as refugees who are entitled to certain protection. That means that the responses that nations have developed are generally unpredictable and ad hoc. So quite clearly, we have protection gaps. This is why the development of good governance, of good laws and policies is absolutely crucial, because the nature and timing of policy interventions will play a huge role in determining the outcomes that people face after a disaster. This is because they affect people's ability to cope, they affect their resilience, something else that Marianne was talking about. In fact, good governance can determine whether or not people move at all, whether they are displaced for prolonged periods, what resources they can access, and how readily they can return home. They also influence whether or not people have options to move on to more secure areas to rebuild their lives. And a, a simple example is this. If building codes exist, if they're enfor enforced and, and implemented, then people will generally be safer than if they're not. If disaster warning systems are in place, then people can get out of harm's way earlier on rather than being displaced 
in a, a very traumatic nature. And we know from studies of floods in Bangladesh, for example, that when people had prompt and adequate assistance, something David was referring to, they were much more likely to stay and rebuild than to go on in search of a better life somewhere else. And by better life, I simply mean finding you know, re basic resources so that they and their families could survive. In the Philippines, a year after Typhoon Haiyan struck, tens of thousands of people were still displaced. They wanted to go home, but the authorities said it's too unsafe, and yet they couldn't provide anywhere else for them to move to. So they were in this limbo situation. So there are a number of things we need to think about when it comes to constructing appropriate solutions or at least responses to displacement and other forms of mobility in this context. First of all, it's essential to realise that we're talking about a multi-causal phenomenon. So it's actually erroneous to say someone has been displaced by climate change, or even, as I said myself before, someone's displaced by a disaster. In fact, disasters themselves are social constructs. Whether a hazard turns into a disaster depends on underlying political, social and economic uh, factors. And in terms of, of these impacts uh, on movement being multi-causal, whether it's in Tuvalu, Kiribati, Bangladesh or anywhere else, what we know is that disasters and other impacts of climate change overlay existing vulnerabilities. Things like living in a really environmentally fragile area, things like a lack of uh, livelihood opportunities. Um, it was described to me, uh, climate change was described to me in this context as the straw that breaks the camel's back. So in that sense, it functions as a threat multiplier. It may, means that disasters become disasters on steroids, if you like. They become more frequent or, or, and or more intense. But climate change too is a process. So slow onset impacts like sea level rise, um, desertification, these sorts of things take place over time, resulting in a far more gradual deterioration of living conditions that ultimately might mean that where you once lived is now uninhabitable. And I think it's important in the, in the context of the small island states, which very often people sort of talk about when they are submerged by sea level rise. In fact, way before that, as Marianne mentioned, the um, saltwater intrusion means that fresh water supplies are corrupted, people can't grow crops, and so they will be uninhabitable for those reasons well before the territory doesn't exist. So in fact, we have to think about um, responses that, that may or may not include mobility um, well before land itself starts to disappear. Current legal protection frameworks don't provide a ready means for people to cross international borders in, in search of safety. So it's these kinds of considerations that prompted the creation in 2012 of something called the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement. This was an intergovernmental process that was led by Norway and Switzerland that, um, despite being intergovernmental in nature, actually was a bottom-up consultative process that sought to build some consensus on developing um, a protection agenda to address the needs of people moving in the context of disasters and climate change. And in particular, they were focused on the cross-border element. 
They ran a series of seven sub-regional consultations around the world with affected communities, with uh, government officials, with experts, a whole range of people. And they, through those consultations and um, commissioned research, developed a very nuanced understanding of the challenges of disasters and climate change in different parts of the world. Last October saw the culmination of the initiative and the release of a protection agenda, which is a non-binding framework that sets out effective practices and concrete strategies for action that should be implemented over time. And 109 governments endorsed that agenda, which I think is very significant um, given the political nature of the topic, whether it's about movement or climate change. Um, but nonetheless, the recognition that this agenda put forward some really concrete things that can be done right now to avoid displacement, to better manage movement, um, and to respond to people who, unfortunately, do have to move. And I'll come to some of those things in a moment. Before I do that, though, I just want to touch on the role of law. Why is it that we need to develop new strategies if we've already got existing bodies of law like refugee law that deal with cross-border movement? Well, the first problem is that international refugee law generally won't assist people displaced across a border in the disaster or climate change context. The reason why is that a refugee is defined as somebody who has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or their membership in a particular social group. So it's really hard to demonstrate that the impacts of climate change or disasters are persecution, as that's understood in the jurisprudence. But even if we meet that, then showing that that is because of your political opinion or your religion, I mean, that's, you know, the effects of climate change are really quite indiscriminate, and therefore that is going to be quite a, a problematic hurdle. But in New Zealand, which is the jurisdiction that has um, had the most case law on this, and they've actually developed a jurisprudence now from their tribunal level right through to their, their Supreme Court, which is their highest court, um, what the tribunal there has said, and endorsed by the court, is that it may be that somebody could become a refugee, not because of the initial event, that is the, the climate change impact or the disaster, but rather if after that event the government was to withhold access to humanitarian assistance because of somebody's religion, for instance, or were to, to um, say, you can't grow crops, you can't have access to fertile land because we don't like uh, the political opinions you hold. Now, that would be a classic refugee situation, the context or the backdrop of which was, you know, the fact there was a disaster. So that's where it might work. So I see given that that's going to be fairly limited, um, I see human rights law as offering the, the best scope for protection because human rights law prevents the return of people to situations where they face a real risk of being subjected to inhuman or degrading treatment or where they face a real risk to their life. Again, this has been um, tested in, in New Zealand and the tribunal and courts there have accepted that disasters, including those linked to climate change, in principle, and I quote, provide a context in which a claim for recognition as a protected person on human rights grounds could be founded. But, and here is the, the sticking point, 
firstly, what the New Zealand jurisprudence does is to say, we have to look at the ability of the state to try and mitigate against those harms. And we have to do that realistically. So whereas if a government was setting up a nuclear power plant irresponsibly and there was a nuclear disaster that was you know, foreseeable, it would have quite a great deal of responsibility for that. It's very different when you're looking at the role of Kiribati or Tuvalu in helping people avoid the impacts of global climate change. And they said what we can see in those countries, because they were the subject of the cases, is that the government is actually taking all the steps within its power to help its nationals. And it would be faced with an impossible burden as a matter of law if it had to mitigate against all environmental hazards associated with it. Second point was a question of timing or imminence. So while there could be scientific projections that in 50 years' time maybe it won't be safe for you to live in Kiribati or Tuvalu, right now it's okay. And that's where, in terms of uh, timing, it seems that while this might offer you protection at some future point, it's not really the most appropriate policy response to think about how might we assist larger numbers of people over time. And just to touch on this, but not going to it in any detail, the statelessness regime is very ill-fitting. Um, I, I don't have time to go into why that is, but very often people will say, oh, well, if small island states uh, are submerged, people will become stateless persons, and it's certainly not that clear-cut. And in any event, poorly ratified regime, not very clear what rights you'll get. So again, not, not a very good answer. So what then do we need to do? Well, I think it's no surprise that people's imaginations have been captivated by this idea of climate refugees, this idea that we need a new international framework, um, new standard setting and so on. That may be so, but I think there are many, many steps beforehand that need to be taken, both for pragmatic reasons. There's no political will to develop new frameworks and you know we've got the Refugee Convention, 147 states parties to it, and look at the mess that we're in, because there's no political will or little political will to implement it. Um, but also conceptual reasons. Why, you know, there are arguments about why privileged people are displaced by the effects of climate change or disasters as opposed to general poverty, um, those sorts of questions too. What I think we really need to bear in mind, though, is that there are things like creating and enforcing building codes um, like making sure land is not overused for unsustainable development. That will make a real difference right now. They're not the sexy topics. They're not the things that PhD students generally think, gee, I want to work on building codes. There, there are some, but not everyone. Um, but in fact, that's what we actually need, and it's what national governments can start to do. It's not going to solve everything, but it will solve something. We need a, a toolkit approach, not a one-size-fits-all. We need to have, uh, and this is what the Nansen Initiative's protection agenda did, came up with a set of strategies. First, they said states need to enhance disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation measures. This will help build resilience in communities, and it means that if disaster strikes, there's a much better chance that people can, can bounce back. They can avoid displacement altogether, or they can move home and rebuild faster. Secondly, though, we do need to prepare for some displacement. That's inevitable no matter what we, we do from here on in. That means states have to ensure that they protect people internally displaced, um, and there are already very good uh, UN standards on this. 
But secondly, governments should think about developing more predictable humanitarian stay arrangements and temporary stay arrangements for people when they are displaced. Central America is a really good example here. They've developed effective practices because pretty much all countries in that part of the world have experienced disasters that have forced people across borders. And when I was at a meeting of those governments earlier last year, there was a very strong recognition that, you know, we're already doing this anyway. We should formalise it and thereby know that I'll help you out, you'll help me out, um, and, and that way we can have a much better system. Thirdly, governments need to enhance voluntary migration opportunities. And there's a really interesting example um, between Australia and Kiribati. It was only a tiny pilot program, but I think it shows what creative thinking can do. What we had in place, and this was actually through AusAid, not through the Immigration Department, was a, a, a program that enabled about 30 um, nursing students from Kiribati to come and study at Griffith University in Australia. They could do their nursing degree here. We have a shortage of nurses. So when they qualified, they could apply through the skilled program here for a visa to work here as a nurse, which would give rise to permanent residence and in turn citizenship if they wanted to go down that pathway. Now, not everybody did, but the flip side of that was Kiribati saw it as a win-win situation because they said even if people don't want to stay, we need nurses too. So we will actually be equipping people with skills that we need, but also that will make them um, valuable contributors to a new community. And this has been packaged, if you like, in what Kiribati calls its migration with dignity uh, policy. And it's trying to work with governments to um, kind of build that up on a, a larger scale. Finally, um, planned relocation is another proactive response that can be taken, but it's generally seen as the response of last resort. So again, in the Pacific, where I've done a lot of work, there have been some very traumatic examples in the past of whole communities being literally moved from one island to another island in another country. And without full participation, consultation, uh, negotiation and discussion, it has generally ended up in pretty uh, disastrous situations. And we certainly know from the development-induced displacement context, building dams where people have kind of moved out, um, that, that people can often end up in a far worse situation of impoverishment than uh, they were in before. So where are we going with this? Well, I think there are many known interventions that could significantly reduce the future numbers of people displaced in the context of disasters or climate change, if only they are undertaken now. And this is, in fact, the mission of the newly created platform on disaster displacement, which is the successor to the Nansen Initiative, which was launched just a couple of weeks ago at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. This is an initiative chaired by Germany with Bangladesh as the vice chair. Australia, once again, is on their steering committee and it will seek to now try and implement some of those recommendations that the Nansen Initiative's Protection Agenda put forward. To quote the Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, if we fail to plan, then we plan to fail. So the action or inaction of governments today will determine whether we see future humanitarian catastrophes or far more manageable forms of movement. And while for those who do move, their ideal outcome might be being able to stay at home and not have to move at all, 
I do think that a pre-planned mobility strategy will be far preferable to displacement in the face of pending disaster. Thank you very much.